five we finally made it i uh am your host the guy who you know does his best to try and keep things straight and you know jeremy and i'm joined by a guy who is really good at deciphering the difference between a squirrel and bananas and that is my, oh my gosh. perpetual co-host michael <laughs> yeah uh i just had a, a captcha thing that i had to fill out for some authentication thing on a library website and it asked me to click to differentiate between pictures of squirrels and pictures of bananas it's the most bizarre like you know fried postmodern meme thing that i've ever seen on like a login yeah because um, you know clearly artificial intelligence can't tell the difference between a rainbow colored squirrel and three bananas <laughs> right they could have made the squirrel yellow at least but it's literally a rainbow colored squirrel i don't understand yeah. Anyway, nah, it's, it was just you know, I, it was the best thing I could come up with. But hey, we we made it five episodes. We reached our goal. <laughs> we did. We did. Yeah. Um. Sorry, this one's a little bit late. My life's been hectic recently, but we are here. Yeah, we made it. Um. So yeah. Um. What's been up to lately, Michael? Other than the hecticness, <laughs> what kind of things you've been uh, playing? Games you've been? Movies? Yeah. Books? My um. My semester just started again at university so i'm teaching and i'm also working on getting started on my dissertation which is cool um and i have been playing a game recently also baldur's gate 3 right you know let's get the elephant out of the room <laughs> yeah the, the you know the big um, d20 elephant <laughs> yeah baldur's gate 3 I mean, what what can be said about it at this point that hasn't already been said by pretty much everyone on the internet at this point um it's it's just genuinely one of the best games I think I've ever played. I, um, I might get around to it at some point. <laughs> yeah, it, it created problems for me like early last month because I had to work on my prospectus, but I, I, I got the Baldur's Gate 3 bug like really bad. And I just, you know, like when you have a great game that you just get into and you stay up till 2 a.m. playing because you don't want to stop. Uh, and then you go to bed thinking like the first thing about like how excited you are to just wake up and keep playing this game. I mean, ha have you ever reached the point where you play a game so much you start dreaming about it? Yes. Yeah. That, that, I, used, I used to dream about the Dragon Ball Fighters combos. <laughs> I uh, the worst one for me was um, when I got Dead Space 
I played the first Dead Space so much that I would have waking nightmares. And so I had to tell my roommate at the time to be like, look, if it's past 11 o'clock, tell me to stop playing this game. Yeah. That's funny. Uh, but also, I've been playing this game called Polia recently, mm-hmm. which is a... Um, it's like, you know, if like a Harvest Moon or a Stardew Valley was an MMO. It's still in closed beta right now, but I signed up for it after seeing a cool ad for it. And it's a surprisingly well-polished and relaxing game that you can kind of just lose yourself in. Mm. Um, I'm somebody who, whenever I play an MMO these days, whether it be like World of Warcraft or Final Fantasy fourteen, I tend to just get really lost in, like, professions. You know, cooking and crafting and doing like the kind of stuff that would normally be relegated to side content yeah um i just find it relaxing and i can kind of turn my brain off for a little bit and just like bake cakes and this game does that really well in a very just like comfortable uh and wholesome online community i haven't seen any toxicity in the community yet which is really cool I think it would be kind of hard to be toxic in a Animal Crossing game, but I'm sure somebody has a way. Yeah. Gamers find a way to be toxic sometimes. Yeah. What do you Quite mean? Fill their house full of washing machines and they can't escape. Yeah. yeah. There was one flow tree that spawned in the entire map and you cleared it before telling anyone else. <laughs> what, a, kind of what a jerk. Yeah, what a jerk. Anyway, what have you been playing? Uh, for me, it's been a lot of Street Fighter Six, uh, and I bought uh, Bleak Sword DX recently. I've been playing it; it's been a lot of fun. It's like a little, it's like a like little Souls like because it's got this neat little like eight bit aesthetic with these like very intricately detailed like they're almost like these little squares. They're just like clips of a scene, and you're like playing them out and. It's, it's been fun. I've, I've through like the first four levels of it so far. And then, yeah, I've been playing Street Fighter with some friends. And then I'm I got back into playing some more Slay the Spire because I was like, I'm going to get all of my character classes to like Ascension 20. So nice. that's just been that. And then uh, I went and saw Oppenheimer finally. Uh, oh, it's so good. It was it was fantastic. I was surprised that on a Tuesday, three weeks after the movie came out, the theater was still packed. Uh. So yeah, that was great. I've been enjoying that. And then TV wise, uh, Fiona and Kate just started. So I watched like the first episode of that and been watching like what we do in the shadows and nice. Uh, the new Futurama. It's been fun. But uh, yeah, outside of that, it's just, uh, yeah, it's, uh, the semester starting here. And so I, all the college kids are back and I'm just swamped with like all these things that I'm working on for all the different departments on campus. So mm-hmm. It's, it's always a good time. But yeah, so uh, today for our, you know, landmark fifth episode that we were finally glad we made it to, we're going to be talking about the video game crash of 1977. Not the one that everybody knows about. You know, that's the other one we'll get to at some point. But it, it was also known as the forgotten crash. Uh, it was one of the first times the video game industry actually crashed. Uh, it's mostly attributed to... Uh, market saturation and there was also some lawsuits involved it's like a weird hodgepodge of a crash kind of and we're gonna we're gonna spend a little bit of time talking about it today because we feel as though it's 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 pretty important for things to come um it's an important marker in the history of the video game industry because 
it's like the first moment where I think um, reality catches up to speculation. Mm-hmm. Um, and this kind of foreshadows later difficulties that the video game industry would have. Yeah. Um, it's also so, yeah. kind of the thing that bookends like the 70s with mm-hmm. video games. Uh, and before we like really get a chance to jump into the 80s, this is kind of like this little like this like pothole that's in the middle of the road of this video game industry that was like, you know, moving full steam. So we're, we're going to talk a little bit about that today. We're going to go over some of the different facets of the things that caused this crash, some of the effects. And then uh, we're going to talk about like how it kind of recovered and some of the lessons that could be learned from it that maybe weren't really learned to cause the next big crash. So, uh, but yeah, so in uh, April of 1974, Magnavox filed a lawsuit against Atari, uh, Allied Leisure's, Ball Midway and Chicago Dynamics. Uh, Magnavox argued that Atari had infringed on Sanderson Associates patents related to the concept of the electronic ping pong based on detailed records Ralph Bear kept on the Odyssey's design processing date back to 1966. Uh, other documents were included in the deposition disp- de- from witnesses and signed a guest book that demonstrated Bushnell had played the Odyssey's table tennis game prior to the release of Pong. So it's um, looking at this lawsuit. So first of all, the, the reason that we're mentioning this lawsuit, I want to say, is not necessarily because this lawsuit causes anything that has to do with the 77 crash, but that this is kind of an early hint as to what uh, direction the game industry is headed in, in during the 70s and how, um, you know, like there's a lot of copycats. Yeah, it, and it, it's pretty bad. It's pretty bad. And but one of the funny things to come out of this lawsuit, which I think from a modern context seems a little bit ridiculous. Um, Ralph Bear and Magnavox were basically suing companies for infringing on a patent that frankly has a very broad definition. And I actually have um, a short article here that was written by Ralph Bear where he talks about the simple definition of the patent itself, and I can read it. Um, so you guys can basically hear what it was. Um, quote, the lawsuits were mainly about infringing on those claims in our patents that dealt with the interaction between machine controlled and manually controlled symbols on a screen. If there was a change in the path, direction, or velocity of the machine-controlled symbol immediately after contacting, that is, coming into coincidence with one of the manually controlled symbols on screen, then the game exhibiting these functions infringed on our patents. Um, That's the definition. And if it sounds ridiculously broad, and like it possibly could include like many different kinds of video games, then you would be correct. Oh, yeah. Um, they threw a wide I mean, net. <laughs> if you're controlling a thing on the screen that touches other things and causes them to change direction or speed up, um, you were infringing on Magnavox's patent, basically. Man, it makes me almost think of like, you could even argue like a command prompt window would be something like that. Yeah, I mean, there's just so many. I, I can think of so many modern video games, you know, like every every sports game you've ever played. Mm-hmm. Any, um, any flight simulator or simulator period. Yeah. 
fighting games. <laughs> we, we're suing these people because they made a farming simulator. Yep. Like, yeah, that, that patent is so, so broad and wide just because like, but I, I guess like you would think about like in the time they probably tried to use as broad of terms as possible so they could encapsulate anything that they would think would match ping pong or pong. Yeah. I wonder if this is like the weird inception moment where everything's just Pong. Everything is just Pong. All video games are just derivatives of Pong. Yeah. Um, but you know what's crazy is it worked. Right? The lawsuit. Um, I mean, aside from Atari, do you want to get more into that? Yeah. Um, well, yeah, I can talk a little bit about it. Like, it's like, so af after this and after considering his options, so Bushnell decided to settle with Magnavox out of court. Uh, in June of 76. Uh, Bushnell's lawyers felt like they could win. However, the estimated legal cost in 76 was $1.5 million, which would have exceeded Atari's funds. Uh, Magnavots offered Atari an agreement uh, to become a licensee for the $1.5 million payable in eight installments. In addition, Magnavots obtained full information on Atari's products publicly announced or released over the next year. Uh, Magnavox continued to pursue legal action against other companies and proceedings began shortly after Atari's settlement. The first case took place in the District Court of Chicago with Judge John Grady presiding and Magnavox won the suit against the remaining defendants. So, you know, you think about like $1.5 million in 1976 is a lot of money. Like, that's a stupid amount of money in today's terms. Yeah. And Atari was like, oh yeah, well, we think we can win this, but they were, they yeah. also would have went broke. And, yeah. and then Magnavox won in their suits against everybody else. Yeah. Like that would have been like Allied Leisure's Midway and Chicago Dynamics. And you would have thought that like those other people would have just been like, oh, Atari backed out. We, sh we should probably back out too, but yeah. So I guess the historical context of this is that the video game industry in the 70s is an industry in which one company can kind of sue like tons of other companies for making ripoff games. I mean, even as broad as that patent is, the fact that there's any doubt at all, um, I guess is maybe just a testament to how homogenous a lot of the early home video game industry looks, especially in the mid 70s yeah oh and, and you can also like it there's a there's a weird theme that kind of runs through this whole crash that like we'll kind of touch on a little bit but it's also if you think about some of our previous episodes it also is that atari kind of plays it smart through all of this uh so them backing out of this is might have been like the smartest decision they make in this whole process right here because you know as you'll see atari kind of winds up coming out as sort of the victors and all of this yeah so um but on on top of this whole you know lawsuit stuff that's kind of like predating this buildup, we start getting into like some like some of the later stuff here which is like how the crash here was different from the other crash that's to come so you know atari had pong that become like insanely popular and there's all these clones and and i believe the quote there was like there was something somewhere talking about how atari literally was just like licensing anybody who wanted to make pong could and 
it became the it was it was so popular and it was cloned until the market could no longer hold any more cloned consoles and it was it was like a dividing line to show the end of like the first generation and i think michael you had something about how like you know with technology and all of this yeah so i think it's important to put um the developments within the video game industry kind of back into the larger context that is the home electronics industry at this point um one of the reasons that the video game industry is able to kind of explode so much such that all of these clones and all of these other game manufacturers are finding ways into the industry is because of how rapidly um things like the handheld electronic and the home electronic electronics market are, are developing in this time um i've got a couple of quotes here so this video game uh, historian and scholar by the name of Mark J.P. Wolf, who has a very interesting article about um, kind of the history of this crash. And he puts it in the context of the calculator market. So looking at the calculator market, for example, there's an article in the October 9th, 1971 issue of Business Week that mentions uh, quote, just three years ago, it was unfeasible to make a battery-powered calculator designed to fit in the operator's hand. The first pocket calculator, which was made in Japan, did not appear until 1969, requiring dozens of integrated circuits. It was bulky as a large paperback book and was priced at a hefty $400. But late last month, Bomar Incorp uh, Instrument Corp of Fort Wayne Industries began shipping the first of its new cigarette pack-sized calculators. They're made entirely in the U.S. with the TI chip at $240 and are the lowest-priced and smallest portables on the market. Um, so in the span of two years, the calculator market advances from making calculators that are about the size of small paperback books and costing $400 to cigarette pack sized calculators that are at $240. So $160 less. And that's $160 in 1971. Yeah. Um, so the industry, the electronics are expanding very rapidly at this time. And this is something that Mark Wolf mentions kind of catches developers off guard. Um, it demonstrated, and this is a quote from Mark Wolf, demonstrated how unbridled enthusiasm within the industry would not necessarily be followed by consumers who are becoming more careful and looking ahead to what new technology was on the horizon rather than adopting every new system in advance as it appeared. Um, continuing miniaturization and rapidly dropping prices of calculators and other electronics industry products led many to expect that further technological advances would happen, making them seem less impressive or at least surprising, or at least less surprising. Yeah. Which is to say, you know, as, as game manufacturers were quick to kind of jump on the ship of technology becoming more available and, and it being easier to get into the game's market, um, consumers were starting to become a little bit more wary. You know, do I buy this new console that just came out or do I just wait a year? And, you know, there's going to be a much more advanced console already coming out next year for half the price. Um, you know, it's like in, mo in a modern day context, you might think if you're a PC gamer, 
you know, do I skip this generation of graphics cards and just wait for the next one because my current graphics card runs everything fine anyway? Um, you know, or do I buy in, right? Mm-hmm. I, but I don't think, personally, I mean, this is just me. I'm not buying every single new generation of NVIDIA card that comes out. I think I'm still running something that's the equivalent of a 2700. Yeah. Well, like, um, even with, like, just regular consumers, think about, like, how the TV market goes. Like, like you know, 1080p was, like, the, the whole big deal, and then suddenly, you know, 4K TVs came out, and when 4K TVs first came out, people weren't really buying them. Right. And they were, like, stupid expensive. And now 4K TVs have reached a reasonable market price that people feel like they can buy them. Yeah. So... You know, it's, it's, it's the market trend of like, I, I can see we're in the 70s where like new technology because of how fresh it is, like turns into this craze where you're just like, you're just buying it up. And then once people start realizing that, oh, this, we had these, these same thing almost came out like two months apart and they're practically no different from one another. You know, they start getting a little more hesitant. Yeah, definitely. Um, so within the context of the video game industry, and I believe that we mentioned this perhaps on our in our third episode, um, but one of the main catalysts for uh, what Mark Wolf calls to be this onslaught of new systems is the AY38500 chip produced by General Instruments uh, in early 1976. Um, Mark quotes a Pong historian uh, by the name of David Winter uh, as saying, quote, A complete video game system could be built with this chip and a few additional components. Since the chip was available to every manufacturer at a low cost, it was no longer necessary to design a whole and expensive electronic circuit. This drastically changed the video game industry. Between 1976 and 1977, hundreds of manufacturers released their video game systems all over the world and other chips appeared, some with color graphics, some with more games, and so on. The period of early video game history was over, and the market was open to everybody. Um, So there was basically a massive gold rush of basically every company that had even a tangential interest in electronics was now thinking, you know, holy crap, I gotta get in on the money in this video game industry. Mm -hmm. Um, Because the speculation surrounding the video game industry at this point was in retrospect frankly ridiculous um mark wolf cites a article from the 1977 chicago tribune saying that there's every reason to believe the boom is only beginning video games sales in 1976 totaled an estimated 3.5 million units uh, which is 10 times the 1975 figures and they are expected to double and redouble within the next two years and should top 16 million annually by 1980. Uh, it's no wonder that the makers of these teletronic competitions exuded nothing but gleeful optimism last January during the Consumer Electronics Show at the Conrad Hilton Hotel. Uh, the article lists 22 systems produced by 14 different companies and over half the systems listed already featured color graphics. Uh, But it does go on to offer a little bit of a warning. Uh, It says, quote, 
A brief cautionary word, despite the variety of electronic games available, some industry observers are convinced the future lies not with limited option dedicated games, but with programmable systems that can be expanded indefinitely. Only Fairchild has such a game on the market today, but others are near. It may pay to wait. RCA, for example, will have its Studio 2 ready by mid-year. It promises five built-in games with three cartridges available initially and others to follow. Um, so you can kind of see already how the attitude surrounding the market is changing, at least in, you know, like an expert opinion. Already yeah. you're seeing people saying like, maybe wait until this one comes out because, you know, like it's now possible for people to make video game consoles that actually allow you to swap cartridges in and out. Uh, you know, like maybe that's going to become a more regular thing. It's just Fairchild right now, but maybe don't don't just buy the first console you see. Um, yeah, do, do some wait. research. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny because in that particular quote, um, if you listened to our third episode where you know, I talk about the, the Fairchild Channel F video entertainment system and then the Atari VCS later, uh, it's funny because the article says only Fairchild has such a game on the market today, but others are near. And implicit within that, but others are near, you know, looking back retrospectively is Atari, yeah. who would ultimately go on to become the more dominant uh, manufacturer and their system would basically all but eclipse uh, the Fairchild Channel F from receiving its proper, I guess, um, recognition within video game history. Yeah, it's just, it's, again, you know, Atari just lurking, like, you know, playing things smart. But, like, you know, you think about, like, the number you were talking about, like, in, like, the projections, and it's like, you'd have to think if all these people start producing all these consoles... You know, and you have this console, you know, what's the first thing that you want to produce for this console? Well, obviously, the most popular game on the market right now is Pong. And the company that's making that game is literally just passing out patents and just like permissions for people to play to make this game however you want. Mm -hmm. So you just if you're Atari, you know, that's not a bad thing because you can charge people for this. Like you'd be like, yeah, sure, you can you can make a Pong clone, uh, you know. I'd have to look into it, but I'm, I'm sure that they are probably like pay us X and we'll give you, you know, yeah. this little right to make a, a Pong clone for your brand new system. And, you know, and, and then turn this leads to Magnavox being like, uh, we're going to sue all of you now. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe Atari was playing some like 40 chest or something. <laughs> probably, I mean, yeah. they, they probably weren't, but like, it, it's just like, it's very <laughs> coincidental. <laughs> There's speculation that Magnavox actually waited until Atari was, like, successful enough to be worth suing mm -hmm. over the Pong stuff. Like, they could have done it earlier, but they actually waited until they would have gotten more money out of it. Oh, so maybe it was Magnavox that was just playing the long game. Like, oh, yeah, yeah. Atari, just, you just keep handing out those uh, those Pong passes and yep. just keep quietly keeping track of these people's names. I will mention briefly, too, that... Um, and, and I think this will be more of a factor later on in the video game industry, especially when we talk about uh, the later crash, the bigger crash that happens. Um, but around this same time, you know, 75, 76-ish, um, if you remember from episode three, this is kind of when home computers start to become a viable thing for people to own. They're still quite expensive at this time. So you have like the Altair and you have the Apple II. Um, 
but there's a lot of interest in hobbyists at this time in just buying computers rather than buying uh, dedicated consoles, especially consoles that only had a couple of games built into them. Um, as computers became a more regular thing, there were a lot of people who just preferred to own computers to play games rather than buy new consoles. Yeah. Um, so that was like kind of another thing, maybe tugging a little bit about tugging at the consumer base that people expected to continue to explode the video game industry well into the early 80, uh, 1980s. And you also had to think like video games were still seen more as like the leisure activity as to where like owning a home computer, not only can it play games, but it can like type up documents for you. It can it can it has like multi functionality like to provide for people yeah so that you can see where that would maybe eclipse the appeal for like someone that's more tech savvy to want to get a computer over buying another console right the console is more of a unitasker um it's funny actually because in that uh chicago tribune article from 1977 uh in his in in the author's section on the warning they do mention uh, that, quote, a program programmable video unit with its ability to create virtually any imaginable kind of visual display has the potential to offer much more than just entertainment. It could be the first step toward a true home computer, useful as an instructional tool and as an information storage and retrieval device. As these applications are refined, the price of new program cartridges should drop, perhaps as much as 50%. Mm. Uh, so it's funny because you know, here is this analyst who kind of sees um, home video game consoles, especially home video game consoles that can have interchangeable cartridges like the Fairchild, which is the one that he mentions, as almost being kind of a step in this direction of the more um, varied and useful home computer like kind of thing that you were mentioning. Yeah. Yeah. A piece of equipment that you can put something in and it does a different thing. Yeah. Well, and, I, and you know that kind of leads us into like what we we're talking where it's like you know here here's these people with this speculation that like we're gonna double our numbers and and then we're gonna double it again and it's like and then in 77 when the crash occurred like companies were starting they had they had so much stop because they had so much faith that this market was just going to keep steamrolling forward that they were starting to they were forced to sell their older obsolete systems at a loss. Uh, yeah. Suddenly the market is just like flooded with all of this, you know, manufacturers of older obsolete consoles and Pong clo- clones were sold at a loss to clear stock and creating this, you know, glut in the market. Atari and Magnavox remained in the home console market despite suffering losses in 77 and 78, but many manufacturers were negatively aff- affected and, you know, Company started just going bankrupt left and right. So then you have Allied Leisure goes out, Fairchild, National Semiconductors. They just leave the console development. And then Magnavots had to cancel their next console. Coleco stayed in, even though they took a $30 million loss in 77. And Atari remained afloat with some helpful funding from Warner Communications. So, you know, you, you see this like massive impact of suddenly this person is like, oh, yeah, you know, video games are going to double in sales in the next year. And then companies start dying left and right. 
<laughs> you know, and and in North America, this drove smaller companies like out of business. But in but Europe had a little bit of a different impact. Uh, the reduction in demand for chips that powered the first generation consoles caused the price of those chips to drop dramatically. Uh, European manufacturers such as Hamonex, uh, Seacam, uh, Soundic released cartridge-based consoles that contained no CPUs. Uh, cartridges for these consoles would contain the same chips that would later power Pong consoles. So, you know, America saw a little bit of a harder hit than Europe. Uh, and I'm not, I don't have a whole lot on like how Japan might have fared. I would figure it would kind of be the same way where it's like little bitty companies probably would have suffered as to where like Atari and larger companies probably still would have rose to the top. But, you know, this, yeah. this 77 crash kind of cleared out a lot of people. It did. Uh, it, it kind of, well, it set the stage for uh, Atari yeah. to very intelligently corner the market and become the dominant manufacturer for like the next six years, at least. Yeah, it was like a, this was almost like kind of a hard reset button right here. Yeah. Uh, so the, the crash would eventually come to an end in 78 uh, when Taito released a game known as Space Invaders. Uh, this would spark a renaissance in the video game industry and pave the way for the golden age of arcade video games. Soon after, Space Invaders would be licensed by the Atari VCS, later known as the 2600, and become its first big hit and quadrupling the console's sales. This helped yep. Atari recover from their early losses and the success of the 2600 in turn revived the home video game market up until the point that it's going to crash again. Mm-hmm. In a short amount of time. That- the way that um, Mark Wolf describes it is that uh, Fairchild and RCA had cartridge-based systems out before Atari did, and this spurred Atari into releasing their system before the market was flooded again. Mm-hmm. Uh, so basically, when the crash happened, Atari was paying attention, um, and I suppose when they kind of sensed that the crash was bottoming out, uh, they released the VCS. The yeah. Atari VCS appeared in October and sold for $189.95, and, uh, $189. which how much did you say that would be? That's almost like a grand in today's That's terms. Crazy. It was like 900 and something, like you, know, like you account for like inflation and everything. Like 180 bucks then would have been like 90 something. Like I think it was like 90, 26 or something like that. It was just like ridiculous like they basically were just selling this thing for the price of a brand new computer yeah i mean like if i wanted to build a new gaming rig today like 900 dollars, even i think would be you know in the range of maybe like a budget computer you know yeah um yeah i know that they're they atari bust up onto the scene with this brand new game that you know is really popular in the arcades that they now have a license for you know and space invaders kind of holds this like interesting little place in history of like it kind of was the game after pong yeah um it, it, i mean it's funny because at this time while atari emerges the clear victor are you fairchild and rca don't just give up um fairchild actually after being bought out by Zircon International, tried unsuccessfully to make a comeback with its Channel F System 2 Mm -hmm. in 1979, which did not do that great. Um, But I think one of the reasons that Atari saw a lot of success, so in direct comparisons between the Atari VCS and the Fairchild Channel F Video Entertainment System, um, one of the things that I believe 
historians point to as being one of the deciding factors as to why the Atari system was more attractive to consumers at the time mm-hmm. is that quite simply there were more game cartridges available for the Atari and they were cheaper. Right. Um, and this is due in part because Atari was one of the first uh, manufacturers to allow um, third-party developers to make game cartridges for their console. Um, Mark Wolf, I'll quote him again. The fact that Atari allowed third-party developers to make games for its systems encouraged the startup of many small game companies, some of which, like Activision and Imagic, were begun by disgruntled former employees of Atari. The third-party game development and production, eventually resulting in over a thousand different cartridges made for the system, would also keep the Atari 2600 in production until its official retirement in 1992, making it one of the most successful consoles in video game history. Wow. Um, So that was like one of the big reasons is like, you know, you look at the 2600 and you're thinking to yourself, I don't know, as like a young kid at the time or just a hobbyist, this console has like a thousand games mm-hmm. um, and then the Fairchild Channel F it's like well I don't know maybe they've got a hundred cartridges and they're twice as expensive I mean I, I don't know about you but I would probably want to buy the console that I knew had more games I mean even though it would probably be hard to find a catalog exactly of what all the available games were at the time yeah it, so, it, it makes me wonder if they took some lessons from like everything before the crash where they were just handing out pong licenses and they were just like what if we just hand out license to make games but we only we limit it to just our system yeah that that would probably be a way to cut down on people developing other consoles and this way they're kind of like and and even from like a developer standpoint it's like well we saw what happened when we tried to make when people try to make too many consoles what if we just make games Mm-hmm. Yes, I, it's almost like this. There's this interesting shift in philosophy there. Yeah, like, I mean, it's almost like I guess the contemporary game industry, where it's like nobody really tries to make consoles anymore, except for the established names. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're a video game, if you're somebody looking to break into the video game industry in 2023, I mean, it almost goes without saying that what you would do is make a video game yeah rather than make a thing that can play video games you know because i don't know the the ouya and the soldier boy game <laughs> console yeah. I, I don't think did very well well or even look at like google with stadia like yeah you know, we've we've had a couple of like false starts with dedicated consoles outside of the main three now uh, yeah. for if you count like all the PCs, you know, the, the PC distribution. So, yeah, I do think I will say, I think that Google was on the money with like, I think, I think something like Stadia will eventually become viable and popular. Mm-hmm. I think the problem with Stadia was primarily just how aggressively bad the monetization was. Yeah, like you had to buy it like it was a real console. Like I think on release, you could just buy a license for it that gave you a lifetime access to it. That was like two hundred and seventy dollars or something. Oh wow! And then you also had to buy the games on top of that. So there, there was like there was little incentive to do that over just having a console. I feel like 
Yeah, and um, also I don't I don't think t- internet was up to speeds to be able to really push for cloud gaming at the time. Yeah, yeah. There's like just a technological hindrance there as well. But I do think I mean as internet speeds become faster, and I think as um, I, I think eventually, you know, there's going to be like a Netflix. You know, maybe you remember Gamefly. That was kind of like Netflix back when they used to mail you DVDs in the mail. Yeah. Um, but I think eventually, right, there's going to be, you know, like Microsoft has Game Pass. You do still have to download the games for that. But I'm thinking like you subscribe for $15 a month and you get access to games that you can stream to your PC. Mm. Um, but who knows? Yeah. So yeah, so I guess this like leads us into our next is like, what what are some of the things that like, I guess gaming today could learn from the crash of seventy seven? Because we obviously know that all the lessons weren't really picked up then, because you know a few years later we have the the more prominent crash. But you know, I guess uh, we were talking about it earlier when we we're looking over the notes. It's like I guess the seventy seven crash is like the canary in the coal mine. Yeah, where it's like here's this kind of pre warning to developers and people in the video game industry like hey this thing can teeter like real quick and yet they still kind of let it still things still kind of happen and now don't take this as like verbatim as the you know they the next crash happens almost verbatim it, it is the next crash is a whole nother like thing which we are definitely dedicating an episode to yeah uh but yeah as far as lessons, I mean, I guess that, yeah, I mean, there's the, I guess, standard economic lessons that maybe you would expect, which is that, you know, don't, don't confuse, um, optimism and a desire to make money with, uh, I don't know, long-term financial prospects or even short-term financial prospects. I mean, there was a lot of hype surrounding the video game industry, but I do think that, it seems clear to me that there were signs retros it's easy to say this retrospectively right um, but it does seem like there were signs that indicated that the growth of the video game industry in like 75 and 76 was like a bubble and that it was not really a sustainable thing especially as new technology was advancing as rapidly as it was mm-hmm. um so, you know, maybe I go back in time and I warn Google to not invest in Stadia, but, <laughs> um, but also I think that there's an interesting, I mean, I think about when I was a kid, I remember pre-order bonuses, like really becoming a big thing. There was like a moment in time where I was like, if you pre-order Halo ODST, you get to play as Sergeant Johnson in firefight mode. Yeah. Um, and kind of all at once, I feel like a lot of developers for Call of Duty and, you know, Halo and there are a ton of games were just starting to do pre-order bonuses to the point where it's like even there were even retailer specific pre-order bonuses. Like, um, you know, if you got something at Best Buy, you'd get something different than if you pre-ordered at GameStop. Yeah. And I remember it just being like a normal thing for a while that I would just pre-order games. And I just like I had no concept of. What if I spend $60 on a game and it's bad? It's like, well, too late. You pre-ordered it already and you got it. Like, 
I, I know it's more reasonable now for people to just be like, don't pre-order games, like wait for the reviews to come out. Like, it's fine. You don't need to be the first one to play the game. You can wait a little bit. I promise it won't kill you. Yeah, that's I, for me, like the the moment where I stopped pre-ordering games was when the shit from One Man's Guy happened. No Man's Guy, yeah. <laughs> I was I was so excited about the game. My roommate was, too. We got it and we were like, oh, OK. And even yeah. today, I am even into that by today's standards, I am so cautious about like buying games around release like if they don't have an embargo lift like at least two days before the game comes out with some good reviews i am super skeptical yeah and it's funny though because it's like one of the reasons that the crash happens as we kind of went over is because gamers or I guess consumers were becoming a little bit more cautious about how they spend their money i mean i, I suppose there must be waves as far as generations are concerned because you know younger kids are going to grow up and they're not going to be as cautious mm -hmm. but i think for me the whole pre-order fast fiasco finally kind of came to a head with like mass effect andromeda mm -hmm. um and i like to imagine that we've kind of gotten to a point now where like i don't see that many pre-order bonuses for a lot of games anymore yeah um i mean starfield apparently if you pre-order it you get to play the game early um that's k1 that if you seems to be like like the trend now though is like buy the game and get in early yeah yeah um what is it i think mortal kombat one if you pre-order like the premium deluxe edition you get access to the game like five days early or something like that which by the way is so obnoxious um but it's a thing if you want to spend like an extra $50 on the game or whatever. Mm -hmm. And or even like and see, I don't mind stuff that's like with like pre-orders. It's like cosmetics. Like, I don't yeah. I don't really care. Like if someone really, really, really wants to support this franchise. Yeah, go for it. And, you know, that's, sure. that's kind of my feelings with just general with microtransactions as a whole, which I'm sure one day we're going to get into an episode where we just like take the bat to microtransactions. <laughs> Yeah, but it, I feel like I don't know. I mean, what are some examples of triple A games like tanking because people like waited? I mean, so Mass Effect Andromeda, maybe you remember the game sold ridiculously well. It like went gold or platinum or whatever before it even came out. Um, and then it came out and the game was messy and ugly and i mean borderline unfinished mm -hmm. and bioware and you know by this i kind of probably mean ea pulled the plug on further support for the game they basically said we made our money we're gonna do like one patch to do some bug fixes and fix the facial animations and then we're out so the game never got any dlc because there was no incentive to it, it, um, it's kind of strange too like i mean think about like I know I know I made the example of talking about like No Man's Sky, but like since then, No Man's Sky has legitimately like fixed things, added stuff and has really survived post launch and fiasco. Yeah, you know, they've genuinely turned it into a great game now. Um, yeah, I mean, Cyberpunk was kind of the same way. Yeah, Cyberpunk is also a game that I was thinking about. I mean, I and maybe this like speaks to my own 
frustratedness with with how gaming developers keep getting away with this. I refused to believe that CD Projekt Red could mess mess up Cyberpunk as bad as they did on release. I mean, I was such a huge fan of The Witcher, yeah. like all three of the games. Um, in retrospect, it seems. I mean, I do think there were hints that like maybe people were just blind to. In in retrospect, that Cyberpunk was like in trouble. Yeah. Um, weird details like Keanu Reeves only being hired in 2018, um, but also saying that he was like working closely with the writers of the game to develop the character of Johnny Silverhand, who the writers were also saying was an integral part of the story and who, um, you know, like Keanu Reeves was like always going to be playing him. I, I just feel like there was moments where I'm like, what hasn't this game been in development for four or five or six years at this point? And you're just now within the last year starting things that seem to be integral to the main story. Um, it it kind of makes me think about like how we were talking about like, you know, this guy in this article wrote the game is going to double and then double again, where it's like you start believing so much in a hype yeah. that it gets out of control. And, you know, Cyberpunk was kind of the same way for me. Like there was all this hype and it was so big. And then it happened and it was there was a mess. You know, and I'm wondering if that was kind of like we were talking about it, like and you look at like how the, the gaming industry was back then is it was primarily targeted towards adults. And what kind of changes with the 80s in like a philosophy terms is video games kind of stop targeting adults. Mm -hmm. They aim to a, like a younger crowd, which granted, you know, arcades were generally aimed at a younger crowd to begin with. So there's almost like it's kind of weird for me to read a statement that says that like video games were targeted towards adults and part of the crash might have also been changed to where people viewed games as leisure and start shifting their their you know start shifting towards home computers. Yeah. So I'm wondering if marketing approach post like in mid 80s changed the philosophy of how the video games were able to sustain themselves versus like here yeah. in the seventies where they're like, we're going all in on this entertainment thing and we're aiming towards this, this like certain market hoping that we're knowing that we've sold so much this year. We believe that we can do even better because people are just buying these things like gangbusters. Yeah. And then they were wrong. Perhaps, um, perhaps children are less discerning consumers. Uh, it's easier to peddle junk to a bunch of kids who, you know, don't know that they shouldn't pre-order games or uh, <laughs> or wait invest for the next big thing or invest in motion controls. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You think about like the Kinect and just how horrible that was received. Yes. Especially when Microsoft was like, you have to use Connect to sign on to your, get into your Xbox. Yeah. So one of many gimmicks that, that Microsoft uh, paid for. Or, or think, uh, like, here's, here's another one that's kind of interesting to think about in terms of just like lessons that could probably be pulled to this is like, think about Guitar Hero. Yeah. Like, it's like what we talked about last week when we were talking about gaming yeah. preservation. Where it's like these people go so hard on these like peripherals, and then when the game reaches its its like 
end and they keep trying to push this stuff, people will just kind of give up on it. Yeah. They're tired of buying the same guitar controller like three times. (laughs) Yeah. They, um... Yeah, I mean, just that they'll oversaturate whatever the flavor of the month thing is. I mean, you know, like, you only need to look at the industry today. I mean, how many... Or even like a couple of years ago, how many early access open world survival multiplayer online games were on Steam at one point? Oh, tons. You know, Daisy, Rust, Seven Days to Die. Um, even Arc the came out of that, I think. Even the Battle Royale boom. Yeah, Battle Royale's now MOBAs a while back. Uh, MMOs in the 2000s, everyone wanted to be the WoW killer for like a whole decade until they kind of realized that. Uh, wow had to run its course before people were interested in playing other things mm-hmm. it's it's almost um, like we have like little versions of the same kind of crash it's just they're not as broadly affecting anymore like the the entire yeah. industry is so stable now that it can survive but like these little trends are kind of like more micro versions of crashes yep like yeah it's an interesting way to think about it yeah like, why why would you release a Battle Royale when, like, Fortnite's the it game? Right. You know what's funny is, like, Fortnite wasn't even the it Battle Royale at first. I It was like PUBG, wasn't it? Yeah, well, it was, um... <clears throat> the Calling? Or what, there was a game on, uh... Was it The Calling? Maybe? I'm trying to remind myself. There was, um... No. There was some game on Steam that was, uh a battle royale there was also like um what is it like daisy king of the hill or something like that Mm -hmm. um which you know daisy was just a mod for arma yeah um i mean i think PUBG was the first major hit Mm -hmm. um and then following up PUBG, i think epic games so i remember when fortnite first came out a lot of people forget this Fortnite wasn't actually a battle royale. Fortnite was a multiplayer open world crafting survival game. Yeah, it was uh, like a horde mode kind of game, wasn't it? Yeah. You paid 40 bucks for the game. And basically what it allowed you to do was join a world with your friends in which you would harvest resources. And you had to build increasingly um, sturdy forts to defend against basically waves of zombies that would come in the middle of the night. They only released a battle, a free-to-play battle royale mode after the fact, and that ended up just being what was more popular, and now it's dominating the world. But it's crazy to me when I still see developers making new battle royales. Like, I keep getting ads for new battle royale games, and I just genuinely think to myself, like, there's no possible way these developers can be making this thinking that they're going to have a successful game. I just don't see a new Battle Royale. You know, like, think about the MOBAs. Like, MOBAs kind of ran their course. There was League of Legends, there was Dota 2. I guess, you know, Heroes of New Earth for a while, but that quickly got eclipsed by Dota 2, and and maybe, like, Smite to a lesser extent. There was also Heroes of the Storm. Yeah, Heroes of the Storm. I guess that's fair. Heroes of the Storm may be, like, one weird example, but I feel like Heroes of the Storm has kind of died out at this point, which is sad, because I did think it was quite good. 
Yeah. But it's like nobody's making new MOBAs anymore, and nobody ever made a MOBA that really kind of challenged the uh, the supremacy of League of Legends and Dota 2. Yeah. I think League of Legends and Dota 2 are still consistently like two gigantic games. I mean, I think League uh, just released their first new uh, released a, a new character. Yeah, League is who knows what League is doing. I mean, they've Riot, Riot's just getting super big at this point. Yeah, like, they've they've made a they've made an animated show. They've got a fighting game coming out. Yeah, like, but it's like why you know nobody in their right mind would try and break into the MOBA industry at this point. Yeah, um, and so I think it's odd to me when developers kind of just like ignore. I, maybe it's just the fact that developers are just not often gamers themselves or maybe they're being controlled or not controlled but they're being driven by, by people who don't play video games <laughs> right and are not paying attention to media and the industry you know such that people just make bombs because they think that they have a chance at making the next big game or whatever Maybe, maybe that's um, what it just needs is a, a genre to have its own micro version of a crash of 77 to really like reset things. Yeah. Someone just starts releasing just multiple clones of Fortnite just unabashedly. Yeah. Well, I, I think one of the things that's, you know, like if a game is good now, I think eventually because, because of how plugged in everyone is, because the internet exists, because of media, um, a game that comes out and is good, people will eventually discover and play. Right. I feel like the big risk now is, you know, companies who dump hundreds of millions, I mean, billions of dollars. I have no concept of how expensive some of these AAA games are. Um, and then they end up being bad and then they lose a ton of money. Like, I'm thinking like Anthem, you know? Oh, yeah. People were so burned by Mass Effect Andromeda that despite the insane amount of publicity and marketing and rollout that EA and BioWare were doing for Anthem, I'm pretty sure the game tanked pretty badly. Yeah. Um, and it's like, well, pre-orders aren't going to save you from releasing a shitty game this time. I mean, you just... Yeah, I'm fairly sure that... did not trust you. I'm fairly sure that game arrived dead. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. I think... I don't know. The takeaway for consumers is don't pre-order games, and I guess the takeaway for devs is um, don't just rely on consumers as being a static, like monolithic uh, body of people who will just buy whatever you push out if it sounds cool. Yeah, don't don't assume uh, that you're going to double and then double again. Right. It's like after getting burned by CD Projekt Red with Cyberpunk 2077. I really like don't trust any developers now. And so like, it's like, I shouldn't have been pre-ordering games around to Cyberpunk 2077 anyway, but I did. And now it's like, I won't even pre-order FromSoft games anymore. Mm -hmm. And that's like, and I trust FromSoft. I, I say this, you know, like maybe this won't age well. I, I don't, I don't think FromSoft can make a bad game, but well, why risk it? Yeah. You know? make good games don't don't rely on a marketing campaign to make you rich before the game has even come out just make good video games and you know like and then you'll have a, a runaway hit like a Baldur's gate 3 who nobody expected to be as insanely good as it is 
Yeah. And then it seems like right now Baldur's Gate 3 is going to be like a really good, like, you know, line in the sand kind of thing. Like, here's what it could be. You know, and it's it's like what we were talking, like, you know, you look at all, you know, it's just like we were saying, uh, consumer trends. Like, you, we have paid attention to the market and now, you know, you, people start acting and companies start to take hits from it, you know. You look at a lot of, like, random indie devs who just kind of, like, fall away or games that die because maybe they're a little too much like one thing or the other. So... But it's, it's just weird that, you know, things keep things tend to repeat. <laughs> yeah, and probably will. I mean, as yeah, <clears throat> as it as there, it there is are new, new, um, new grifts for for gaming. Uh, I mean, like loot boxes, right? It's like you, the, people are always going to find different ways to trick kids into buying things that are not worth it. Yeah. All right. Uh, so any final thoughts on uh, the crash in 77? <laughs> I think we covered it pretty substantially and then and then you know speculated on, on <laughs> its significance for the larger industry. Yeah all right. Well, I want to thanks folks again for you know keep listening to us as uh, we've now reached our, our original goal of the fifth episode and uh, I don't know what our next goal is probably survive to the beginning of next year. Uh, but next month being October, we feel as though it's kind of obligated to do something kind of spooky. And uh, so we're going to we're going to talk about an interesting topic. Uh, we were originally going to talk about one thing. And then the more I got to thinking about it, I was like, what if we kind of talk about like a whole area? And we're going to our next episode is going to be uh, talking about horror games and like how the environment themselves influence like horror games or make games spooky. Which yeah. I know Michael's excited about. I am as yeah. well. Um, so yeah, so tune in next month, and then uh, our November episode. Before we get out of the seventies, we're going to backtrack a little bit and talk about mainframe gaming and how that yes. kind of influenced things as we leave the seventies finally. And then our December episode will be our obligatory awards month episode. Yeah, looking forward to it. So yeah, you know, Michael's just gonna keep picking Baldur's Gate three for every single one of the categories. It's definitely. I mean, what else? What else? Uh, <laughs> what else can contest with Baldur's Gate three at this point for Game of the Year? I mean, like Tears of the Kingdom, sure, right? You know, glorified expansion for Breath of the Wild. Don't shoot me. <laughs> oh God, they're gonna come for us now. And they're gonna come for me. And I'm gonna get canceled. Yeah, well, you know, and, and on, on that, we can tell us where people can find you to yell at you, Michael. Yeah, I believe uh, if nothing else has changed, um, I'm on Instagram at uh, mackerel underscore prawns. Uh, I'm on X now is what it's called. Yeah, they, they uh, finally I, changed it. <laughs> they finally changed it to X. I believe it's also just mackerel prawns, though I don't really use it. Uh, and I was thinking about even deleting it just because I hate Elon Musk. So, <laughs> uh, and you can find me on Instagram and Facebook at PressArtF4. Uh, I'm also on the Cajun Greatness Show. It's still currently on a little bit of a hiatus. We got some stuff going on, uh, and you can check us out and find older episodes on our Linktree website, which is link uh, tr.ee/slash/the instruction booklet. Uh, we're also on, we're also on, on, it's, uh, instruction underscore BK on X. I only post the episodes. I really do anything else on there. Uh, and, uh, we're also always happy to be a part of this AOSCH extra. They're nice enough to let us, 
you know, linger and philosophize about things. You, you can find them on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify. It's uh, and then they're also on X at at AYCH Extra, and they also have an Instagram account. So yeah, thank you again for tuning in and listening to us talk about video game history stuff, and get ready for next month as we talk about some spooky stuff. But uh, yeah. so yeah. Other than that, y'all have a great rest of your day. See ya. See ya.